0: Hey everyone, this is Hiba, Communications Manager at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This week, we're bringing you a bonus episode from our friends at the Green Dreamer podcast. Green Dreamer is a podcast for those who are yearning to live lives of vitality and fulfillment and who are dreaming of a thriving planet to call home. Green Dreamer inclusively and inquisitively dives into how sustainability is intersectional to all areas of our lives. This episode explores how decentralized energy grids can make communities more resilient against natural disasters like Hurricane
1: Maria in Puerto Rico. Hope you enjoy and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Building Local Power. Once you know the facts and once you know what you can do at the local level and once you know what you're aiming for, don't stop. Be relentless and and speak truth to power.
0: How does renewable energy relate to natural disasters and disaster relief? What is the role of decentralized electric grids in sustainable development? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To join our Green Dreamer network and support the show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a patron. For now, to our conversation with J.I. Cruz, the co founder of acepr.org, which is a nonprofit social enterprise and accelerator program that aims to provide Puerto Rican community leaders with the resources, financing, and know how needed to establish renewable energy microgrid cooperatives across the island. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the
1: word. I think it really started when I was just a kid. I was around six years old, and I saw images of Hurricane Isabel as it, made a landfall in North Carolina. I lived in Puerto Rico at the time, and, but my uncle lived in Virginia, so we were paying attention because we were concerned. But even as a six-year-old, I was just blown away. But I, what I was seeing in the news seemed like stuff I had seen in movies, and I couldn't believe that you know forces of nature could do that. And I think as I kept growing up and I kept witnessing storms, either here in Puerto Rico or just elsewhere, I, I really became like a hurricane fanatic. But I also... As I grew up and matured, I started realizing just, you know, the depth of power and and how power plays a role in in essentially how nature can destroy humanity, but also, as I learned more about climate change, how we are destroying nature Mm -hmm. and about, you know, how power uh, has played a role in in that yin and yang or quid pro quo that's going on right now. And, And so once I decided to go to college... I realized I wanted to work in science and I wanted to work in something that had to do with sustainability, but I wasn't exactly sure what that would be. But I I was pretty dead set on the idea of working on nature and, and in man's relationship to nature in some way or another, because, in my opinion, it was a broken relationship. So before I even went to college, I had the excellent opportunity, thanks to a scholarship, to be able to be a Global Citizen Year Fellow. And Global Citizen Year is a gap year program that takes, you know, uh, young students who just finished high school and and gives them an opportunity to live in a different country and work on an apprenticeship and, and essentially try to learn through service before they go to school. But what I love about Global Citizen Year is that they do it in a way where they also teach the student about what sustainable development means and and what does it mean to try to be a change maker, and, and essentially how do you work on these things about you know becoming another colonialist or uh, somebody who's just trying to help, but uh, you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as they say. Uh, I went to Senegal for my gap year, and uh, the minute I arrived to my host community and realized that I would have to live next to a landfill, it, it kind of kind of backwards of, you know, a light bulb going on uh, over your head, it, a, a light bulb kind of burst. Mm. It kind of broke me to, to, to realize that I had never really thought about my own solid waste and where it went. And now I was going to live in a community where people had to think about that all the time or where the lack of thinking about it was directly affecting the health of their environment and their community. And that changed everything for me. I kind of got obsessed with the topic um, and decided that I wanted to work in sustainable development and infrastructure. And I went to college thinking that I would dive straight into solid waste as a field. But once Hurricane Maria happened in Puerto Rico, I kind of pivoted to energy because it suddenly became very personal to me. And I suddenly realized there was a timely demand for rebuilding energy infrastructure in Puerto Rico in the sustainable way I had always dreamt about doing. so. I'm right out of college right now, and I'm working on several energy projects here in Puerto Rico, although I hope one day to go back to solid waste.
0: And I'm curious, how did you come up your actual idea for APR?
1: ACE ACEPR, which stands in Spanish for the Electric Cooperative Accelerator of Puerto Rico, it came out as, I guess, the second version of an original idea I had had, about how I could proliferate solar energy and resilient, uh, you know, hurricane-proof solar energy through Puerto Rico. Uh, My original idea uh, looked at creating community-based partnerships with faith-based institutions. So, you know, mainly churches here in Puerto Rico, but also synagogues and mosques. But once I arrived to Puerto Rico and started working on my project, I started realizing that to meet the demands of the challenge, uh, I needed a much bigger vehicle for, you know, creating change and building infrastructure in Puerto Rico. It was around this time that I learned a lot. I learned deeply about the subject of electric cooperatives. um, And electric cooperatives are in and of themselves just... Think of an energy company that provides electric services, except that the consumers who uh, receive those services actually own the energy company itself. So it's kind of like a community run, community owned business that has, you know, energy democracy essentially baked in to the culture of that institution. And so electric cooperatives, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that they're actually very popular, both in uh, South America and in the United States um, you know there are over 900 electric cooperatives in the United States that service well over I believe 45 million Americans. Nevertheless, um, a lot of these of these cooperatives over time kind of just became just big energy companies and the, the part about energy democracy kind of became more of a of an afterthought even within these organizations and so I started looking at these new forms of electric cooperatives that were popping up these new generations. of of electric cooperatives uh, that were based uh, not so much on the old-fashioned, rural, we got to get a lot of power from the coal power plant to our farm that's far away kind of cooperatives, but these new, modern, urban, community-based, you know, redistributed solar microgrid cooperatives, and, you know, these kinds of projects were way fewer in existence. There were none here in Puerto Rico. And I decided that, you know, that had to change. Just recently here in Puerto Rico, electric cooperatives became a legal entity that is possible to exist. And But we realized that there really aren't any communities that even know how to start the process. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there needed to be some sort of organization or institution that had a community's best interest at heart. And that would help them go through the legal and technical weeds that, you know, you have to get through to try to set something like this up. And so now ASPR is working with about four different communities uh, around the island to try to start community-based solar energy microgrid projects. If these four projects uh, are completed to their maximum potential, then we're talking about 10 megawatts of energy and about anywhere between 5 to 10,000 people who would have their own solar energy that's more resilient, better run, less likely to go out in the next storm, and that is, you know, infrastructure that belongs to the community.
0: Mm. I was going to ask, how does having renewable energy impact the community's resilience to things like hurricane? Because you had this idea in light of Hurricane Maria. So how are those mm-hmm. things related?
1: Well, it's related in two ways. I'll, I'll give you the practical one and the philosophical one. The practical one is simply that over-centralization in a system, uh, any system, means that points of failure are far and few in between. And if one thing goes down, the whole system can come crashing down. And that's what has been happening in Puerto Rico. Even before the hurricane, Puerto Rico has had, you know, pretty unreliable electric services from our publicly owned monopoly uh, for decades. Almost a year before Hurricane Maria, there was an island-wide blackout. And then obviously Hurricane Maria happened. And you know, it took a whole 11 months to get everyone in the island reconnected and about another 18 months to get, you know, every single electric customer, including our smaller islands into the grid. And that's because our system was over centralized, dependent on too few points of failure, and dependent on, you know, old fashioned ways of how to create energy, which are essentially giant, corporately owned fossil fuel based uh, power plants. Mm. So, Practically, it makes sense to create a system that is redundant, where there are multiple points of failure, where if one thing crashes down, it doesn't bring the rest of the system down with it. So renewable energy microgrids that are decentralized or scattered throughout the island provide that kind of resilience and uh, also provide a new form of generation that does not depend on something arriving at our port and then us burning it. Hmm. So that's a practical point. And the philosophical point is Uh, One that kind of speaks more to how I got to this issue, which is just that, you know, climate change is real. We can't attribute any particular storm or one event to climate change because climate change is about trends. But the trend is also pretty noticeable. Storms are getting stronger. Ocean water is getting warmer. Puerto Rico is actually going through uh, a drought right now as we speak. Um, It's the second one we have in the past four years, I believe. This is not common at all and never happened as I grew up. Mm. And I believe there is a moral imperative for us to take action on this. Now, Puerto Rico's energy consumption is nothing compared to many other countries in the world. But I still do believe that as a society, we have an imperative to transition to renewable energy as fast as possible. And so if I can change our electric grid and redistribute power, both kind of literally and figuratively, then I think we're, you know, in the right track towards solving climate change. And and I think there's there's something very um, poetic about the fact that I see small island nations being the first to take the steps to go to 100% renewable as fast as possible, Um, even though they're the nations that probably matter least in terms of impact to the global makeup of energy, but it's because they know that they're going to be the first ones to go. Mm. So, Here I am in Puerto Rico trying to do the same thing here, trying to prove that there's something practical and philosophically important to transitioning to renewable energy.
0: I'm curious, do you think it's possible to transition to renewable energy while keeping that source decentralized? Or do you think we need to both transition to renewable energy and decentralize our sources of energy at the same time?
1: I think... Technology is allowing us to be able to decentralize how we build our electric grids in ways that we didn't consider beforehand. It's not necessary to decentralize your grid. We can just build a giant solar farm that's like 20 square miles wide and long and call it a day. But I don't think practically that would make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I also think that when you over-centralize systems, to to make it work, you have to also centralize power, decision-making power. And and as someone who has seen, uh, you know, the inefficacies both of over-centralized government and of over-centralized private interests, I think it's beneficial to us to say, hey, even if it's not the most optimal format to build an electric grid, to, you know, build our uh, power generation across small pockets everywhere and try to build a smart grid, which might you know, need some extra investment on the front end. I think you get some social return and also some return on resilience that in some ways you can quantify. And, and there are studies out there that demonstrate quantifiably that there is a financial return to that. But you, I think you also get some sort of qualitative uh, aspects on return of investment. Mm. I, I think, you know, people say, you know, if you want a good diet, eat food that you know where it came from uh, or, you know, like a hundred mile diet or whatever or eat local. We say the same about our water. We say the same thing about how we you know interact with our friends. And, you know, like just being on social media is bad. And I think we should think the same thing about energy. I think knowing where energy comes from and having it near and dear to our own communities makes us very conscientious of what has to go into it to make it work and how we build these systems, whether it's our, you know, food systems or electric grids, it says something about what we as individuals and as a collective honor in our society and how we want society to run.
0: So not only can decentralizing our power sources democratize power in a way, but it can also empower communities to be more self-independent and self-sustaining precisely so you started this when you were in in college so you were like 21
1: uh yes is that right yes yeah i was 21
0: (laughs) did you ever feel like your age was a limiting factor to you starting a company or a venture like this
1: absolutely it's always a problem today especially in in Puerto Rico. There, there's still a lot of problems like classism, uh, elitism, uh, ageism. Sometimes I have to work a little harder to demonstrate to everybody that I do know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. There have been times where, you know, I take my 35 year old white female American co-founder into a meeting, not because it was relevant that she was there, but because I know they're not going to take me seriously if, if she doesn't come with me. But I never let my age get in the way of me wanting to dream and me wanting to do what I know I could do. I'm not a perfect human being, but I I am blessed and lucky to have a pretty smart brain. I think I have a knack for how systems work. And for a long time, I was was a very successful college student. You know, I, I jumped from scholarship to scholarship, you know, got a full ride to go to college, would get awards here and there to go to this shiny conference or that other conference, but I started realizing that, you know, all of it was worth nothing if it meant that I couldn't actually use my talents to do any actual impact. And and so I told myself that I, I was just tired of this academic elitist lifestyle that I accidentally kind of fell into when I moved to Washington, D.C. to go to American University. And that it was time to just go back to my communities and, you know, use all this social entrepreneurship and social impacty stuff that I was able to learn and, and put it to good use. And I don't think that age matters there at all. I think it's just about saying, I I know what I'm good at. I know how I can serve. And I I know this is where my talents are needed. And that's independent of the time in your life that you happen to be living.
0: And since you had this idea and started working on this to where you are today, what's been the most challenging part about turning your vision to life?
1: Um, Financing. (laughs) Money is definitely difficult to come by. And uh, let me rephrase that in a way money is difficult to come by when you're trying to do something in a completely different fashion of how it was done before. We've had opportunities to jump on projects that, you know, could have been worth, you know, million dollar deals or whatever, but they wouldn't have actually addressed both the social and practical technical missions that we have set for ourselves. Right now, we have about two communities that are, you know, ready to get some money and get to work and run a profitable community-owned business. But right now, what we're doing to ensure that they can actually run these businesses is being able to find the right financing options for them, the right kind of investors with the right kind of values who are willing to jump on this project and take those risks. And that's also kind of true for any social entrepreneur who is really trying to do something that's high risk, high reward, high impact, um, but also local. I believe in the theory that, you know, you should always start changing what you have control of, and that's yourself and then your family and then your community and then your country. But a lot of people these days just try to jump straight to, you know, changing the country. And whether that is through activism or through trying to start the next, you know, multi-billion dollar startup. We're really trying to solve problems at these scales and, and using money at these scales. When really, I think we could be creating a lot more interesting solutions at the community level, uh, just a slightly smaller scale. Instead of thinking of billions of dollars, it thinks of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Uh, that sounds like a lot of money for some folks, but for those people who you know push money around Wall Street every day, you, you know that, that that that's pocket change. Mm. And, and so right now, being able to, to find inclusive, democratic and functional forms of financing that our communities feel comfortable with accepting, that's something that is a challenge. Uh, So like one of our first communities that we started working with uh, to build a a community on microgrid, the reason that we started working with them was because essentially they felt ripped off by a group of American consultants that were essentially just helping in the job so that they could then get the contracts to do the job. But um, by doing that, they essentially set their own price tag and then found their own investors and said, this is how the project's gonna be run folks. And the community was just completely um, unhappy with that kind of setup where they had no control over uh, project management or where the money came from or, you know, no no capacity to negotiate what, what investor rights would look like in that kind of setup. The project fell through and, and now we're uh, helping them kind of restart the project, but looking at local financing opportunities as well as uh, crowdfunding and special opportunity zones, which are the, this new qualification that certain areas in the United States get from the IRS, um, where if investors put money into investment projects in those areas, they'll get uh, essentially a tax cut on the capital gains that they make out of that investment. And what's great about this new tool is that it's something that is available for Puerto Ricans to be able to invest in themselves too, um, because the only other popular renewable energy investment vehicle was unavailable to Puerto Ricans. Now we're trying to find ways to ensure that we can essentially build these great projects, but also allow Puerto Ricans to invest in themselves.
0: And I feel like that's related to the bigger issue we have at hand is that at this time, we really need to challenge the ways that we've been doing things. So we want to do things differently. But there's the chicken and the egg issue where people have these new ideas and want to try new things. But people who offer financing or investors are more willing to put money into things that they know already work. And they're less likely to put money into new ideas, like you mentioned. So beyond your own venture, how do you think we can work with this in the bigger picture?
1: Investors need to start looking at more than just the financial return of a project. I could go on a tangent here, so please stop me if I go way too down the (laughs) rabbit hole. But our monetary system today does not do the 100% most perfectly possible job at taking what we value in society and representing it through the dollar or through whatever currency you you might think of. It just doesn't. You know, there are externalities such as social impact and environmental impact that free markets do a very bad job at tracking. And so... I believe that the reason that so many folks in the past few years have jumped on this Bitcoin train or the cryptocurrency train is in part due to the fact that I think many people are doubting how efficacious our own monetary system is at valuing the things we actually value. And I personally don't buy the Bitcoin bubble or or some of these other cryptocurrencies, but I really sympathize with the reasoning behind why it became popular. I really do. And so I think there's two things we can do. One of them is, you know, to blow up the entire financial order and rebuild it once again and do it in such a way where we can use computer algorithms to try to internalize into the value of things, the kind of social and environmental impacts that, you know, different ventures actually leave. Um, But that's probably going to be impossible within my lifetime. So the other way is to just make sure that when we're building companies and, and, and investing in companies... That we, just as professionals, and, but also as human beings, make sure that we look not only at the financial return of a project, but also the social and environmental return. And and also, very importantly, how the organization in and of itself decides to self-organize. An organization that puts people over profit, its own people over profit, or companies that ensure that all of their employees have their basic needs met, companies that ensure that the way profit in the company is distributed is uh, democratically determined and done in a just fashion, those kind of kind of companies can be successful. Um, I think, for example, of the Mondragon Corporation, which is a shell company in Spain and, and one of Spain's biggest corporations. And all of Mondragon's uh, subsidiary companies are cooperatives. They are companies that have democracy ingrained into its DNA. And there are companies where usually the difference in pay between the executive and the entry level employee is not 300 to one, but six to one. I had the opportunity to uh, meet one of the executives of the Mondragon Corporation a few days ago. And there was something that he told me that really stuck with me, which was um, these days in the United States, a lot of people talk about redistributing wealth And if we're talking about redistributing wealth, then our policies have already failed because it meant that we failed to distribute wealth appropriately the first time around. So we have to look at corporate culture. We have to look at how we decide to run our business as in and of itself a valuable asset in how a business leaves impact in the world. It can't just be the dollar value. And so if there's any one thing that I want people to take away from what I have to say is that it's important to invest with more than just dollar signs. And we should support projects and institutions that find ways to catch social or environmental value into the dollar sign, or we should support entire entirely different monetary systems that actually do it from the get-go. Right. And if we can't do that, then at the minimum let's ensure that when we do invest we have a triple bottom line and not just a singular profit based bottom line
0: so you also have experience working and supporting campaigns focused on climate change at the local level so to close off what does it take for us to run effective environmental campaigns locally that we can learn from
1: so i'll mention a few and i and i'll let the listener you know take away from that what they may but in in any campaign work in any local organizing for any situation, whether it's climate change, whether it's gun control, you know, and it's not, this isn't separated, it's just a left, like any issue you may have across the spectrum. For me, there are probably three to four essentials. Um, the first one is know your facts. People who campaign on a topic, campaign on it because they believe they have a better answer, that they have a better way that the world can do things. Oftentimes they're right, especially when, you know, those campaigns have to do with issues that directly impact their identities. So for that example, I'm thinking of, you know, how gay rights uh, have successfully campaigned and and, and like a tidal wave had been able to change, you know, America's attitude uh, towards the LGBTQ community over the past 20 years. They were able to run those excellent campaigns, not only because they knew the facts about their own personal experience and why the world had to change, but because they also knew the facts about, what did other people truly believe in and why they believed in those things? Because if you can understand those things, you know, on a sociological level, then you can essentially, you know, very precisely, surgically poke at the thing that's wrong there. So, for example, I, let me go back to something that I'm, I'm more of an expert on in climate change. One, one big issue in climate change uh, organizing all the time Uh, And that's something that's always like a very controversial point in uh, climate organizing is on whether nuclear energy is a good option for the world. You can ask one environmentalist and they'll say all the science points to the fact that nuclear isn't as bad as people say it is. And we should definitely be doing nuclear and we should be proliferating as much nuclear as possible because it's the only thing that will help us reduce our carbon footprint in time to combat climate change. And then you will go somewhere else uh, to a different organizer And they'll tell you a different story. They'll say, no, because I lived near a nuclear power plant and uh, concerns over uh, environmental hazard have existed there this entire time. And I also have a friend who lives next to a coal power plant. And I've seen what coal ash does to them. We have to get rid of any kind of energy that has even the potential risk of harming the health of uh, of, local folks. And both of those people are probably right in their analysis of the situation. And as an organizer, as someone who is trying to change the system and offer a different path forward, it's important to be able to know the facts, be able to look at both of those people talking and, and, and understand where the facts lie, how the facts relate to our own experience and our own identities, and how that is going to impact what I'm standing for in the first place. And so, for example, right now, the Green New Deal is a, a huge talking point that has showed up over the past few months, thanks to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's leadership in Congress. And it's already been bashed a lot by both people on the left and the right. And one of the main points of concern right now is, do we allow nuclear as an option for the Green New Deal? And even amongst the left, we're already ripping uh, each other apart because we don't know how to answer that question. And so that's where I think local organizing comes into play, because... This is a national debate that we will keep having that will keep occurring and that every one of us individually have very little control over. Nevertheless, at the local level, we have a lot more control about what we can do. You know, talking to the president is hard. Talking to your alderman or your uh, city council member or your mayor is probably a lot easier. So I think the second valuable point about organizing is start local. Uh, You know, national is sexy and is always on the news, but local organizing can be more effective. And I think the best solution to realizing whether or not we should use nuclear as an option for the Green New Deal is to ask the people um, who live in the backyards of where we would put nuclear. What do you want? What, What is what would benefit your community the most? And if we let that empowerment happen at the local level, I think we will see a natural emergence of the right kinds of answers so knowing your facts focusing on the local level i think those two are essential lastly i think i would say don't let the first thing and the second thing i said prevent you from speaking truth to power so when appropriate be brave and just you know call out what needs to be called out when it needs to be called out i don't believe that we can appropriately address climate change unless we do a radical nationwide effort to combat our carbon emissions and i'm doing what i need to do in puerto rico to work to getting us to zero carbon i also know that i can't i can't accept compromises i can't accept 100 percent renewable by 2050 we need a carbon-free economy by 2035 at the latest and so i would tell any organizer who, who's trying to campaign around this issue or any you know once you know the facts and once you know what you can do at the local level and once you know what you're aiming for, don't stop. Be relentless and, and speak truth of power.
0: Thank you for that. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and supporting you online. So what's next for you and where can we follow your work online?
1: You can go uh, to acepr.org and hit the contact form. And in the contact form, that will also sign you up for our newsletter. And you can also do the same at jicruz.com, my personal website, where you can also sign up for my personal newsletter so you can know what's up next.
0: It's so easy to feel lost, stuck, unmotivated, or like we're alone in this journey working towards a more sustainable and just world, which is why I created our Green Dreamer Network to connect our past guests as well as our most passionate listener patrons supporting the show. On the inside, we're sharing positive sustainability news, green ideas and opportunities, thoughts on topics discussed on the show and beyond, and more. On top of this, for our Green Leader patrons, I'm also hosting live monthly masterminds. So if you're working on a passion, project in sustainability and are eager to elevate your reach and impact, this was made for you. To support our work, join the network, and potentially our masterminds as well, you can just head to greendreamer.com support for more information. I hope to see you on the inside of the network, but for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting or enlightening social media account or publication you follow?
1: ContraPoints, the YouTube channel, an excellent YouTube channel on political theory and gender theory by uh, an excellent person named Natalie Wynn from Baltimore. She's blown the game away.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: Oh, wow. I hope it doesn't bum people out because I know why it makes me feel better, but I don't think it makes other people feel better. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, what works <laughs> good for you? I just kind of say the entire world is just a bunch of happy accidents. I personally believe that, you know, most things that happen in life are outside our control and that can scare you at the beginning. But then after a while, it, it helps you be a little stoic and understand y- you, you shouldn't blame yourself for everything that happens in the world. And then you, can, uh, you should be happy about the happy accidents when they happen. And you should be happy when bad things happen because technically they're an accident where they weren't your fault. So uh, the entire world is happy accidents.
0: What are you working on right now for your health?
1: I recently started an intermittent fasting regime, and it's going great. you got to do it right, you got to do it healthy, but if you do it well, it works, because I've never really had a diet that's worked, but I've lost like 15 pounds in the past three weeks, and I'm feeling as energetic as I've ever been.
0: What are you working on right now to live more sustainably?
1: I stopped eating takeout fast food.
0: What makes you most hopeful right now about our planet?
1: Research on perovskite solar panels. Um, So, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm kind of a nerd, but perovskite (laughs) is a material that, uh, while not as efficient as silicon, cannot actually help us create solar panels at a way cheaper price. And so if perovskite research uh, hits the bullseye, then we can make solar so cheap that it would be a breeze to be able to get um, this planet to, you know, a a 100 percent renewable future, at least in the tropical area.
0: And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Think global, act local.
0: Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in, and a huge thank you to our new patrons: Minami, Zindra, Zach Street of Earth Love Creative, Anne Alter, and Taylor Tremaine. Thank you so so much. You too can become a patron and join our Green Dreamer Network by going to greendreamer.com/support. As always, show notes at greendreamer.com/131 for episode 131. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page, and you can find me on Instagram at command at shane and at green dreamer podcast finally as we're wrapping up just remember now more than ever our planet needs your light to thrive so if you haven't yet hit subscribe and i will catch you later green dreamer